professional podcaster he looks like. I know, I know. I look like such a nerd with these headphones on when I record. <laughs> I love the list of apps on his website. He has like everything from like a breathing app to like water drinking app, like everything, everything. <laughs> well, hi everybody. I'm Carly Vigna and this is episode 296 of App Percussion. With me as usual, our co-host Ksenia Komunovic. Hey Ksenia. Hey Carly, how are you? I'm doing well. You have this beautiful background there. Thank you. Just, you know, got to advertise my university a little bit. Speaking yeah. of universities, how's your new gig? It's it's going well so far. We start classes tomorrow. Whoop, whoop. Good well, luck. maybe ask me next week. Definitely. <laughs> no, I'm happy. Uh, Casey Cangelosi is also here. How's it going, Casey? Hey, what's up, everybody? And Ben Charles is here. Hey, Carly. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Thanks, Ben. So we are recording this episode on August 29th, but if you're listening on release day, it'll be September 9th. So Ben, what happened in music history on September 9th? So uh, if, if you're bored, just look up September 9th in music history because there was some wild stuff that happened. I have three things before we get onto the two serious things. One, in 1988, Elton John held a garage sale that lasted four days, and uh, it was described as a very high-class episode of Hoarders. <laughs> Apparently, all sorts of weird stuff went on the market. Uh, in 2004, Bootylicious was added to the uh, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. And in 2007, there was a fight that broke out between Kid Rock and Tommy Lee Jones at the uh, MTV Video Music Awards. Hang on, is it Tommy Lee or Tommy Lee Jones? Which one was in Motley Crue, Casey? Tommy Lee. Tommy, Tommy Lee. Lee. I always get that mixed up. Sorry. Tommy, Tommy Lee, Lee is the and actor. Kid Rock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, got in a fight at the, the 2007 uh, MTV Video Music Awards. So like I said, all sorts of weird stuff. But the serious and possibly more relevant ones to percussionists are we're actually going to celebrate two birthdays today. In 1901, James Blades was born. James Blades was a longtime associate of Benjamin Britten. And in fact, Benjamin Britten wrote a piece called Concert Piece for Jimmy for James Blades. It's for timpani and piano that is published, uh, although I've never heard it performed. Uh, James Blades played in the Melos Ensemble and also the English Chamber Orchestra. In 1954, he was appointed professor of music at the Royal Academy of Music. His former students included Evelyn Glennie, Eskel Masson, and weirdly, Carl Palmer uh, of rock and roll fame. I had no idea. In 1971, he published his very famous work called Percussion Instruments and Their History. Uh, it's like the textbook for everything uh, percussion as far as uh, history of timpani or world music. It's really, really interesting. It's now published uh, as a PDF that you can get. Uh, and in 1977, he released his autobiography called Drum Roll, A Professional Adventure from the Circus to the Concert Hall. In 1971, he was awarded the Order of the British Empire. And in 1975, he was elected to the PAS Hall of Fame. And our other birthday today, uh, in 1927, Elvin Jones was born. Elvin Jones was fascinated by drums by the age of two. Apparently he saw circus marching bands go by and he was just fascinated by the drum line. Uh, he went on to join his high school marching band where he learned rudiments. And then after graduating from high school from 1946 to 49, he served in the army. Uh, he was honorably discharged and uh, he used his mustering outpay and $35 that he borrowed from his sister to buy a drum set. He would go on to play with Miles Davis, Charles Mingus, Sonny Rollins, McCoy Tyner, and Wayne Shorter, among many other jazz greats. In 1960 to 66, he very famously played in the John Coltrane Quartet, and he was inducted into the PAS Hall of Fame in 1991. 
the Modern Drummer Hall of Fame in 1995. He was an inaugural recipient of the Zildjian American Drummers Achievement Award in 1998. And in 2001, he was awarded an honorary doctorate of music from the Berklee College of Music. So happy birthday to both Elvin Jones and James Blades. Thanks, Ben. That's nice. I was getting a little worried when you led with Elton John's yard sale and uh, what was the second one? Bootylicious. Bootylicious and the uh, the Kid Rock and Tommy Lee fight. Right. Or right, Tommy right. Lee Jones, whatever. Or yeah, yeah, one of the two. One of the other. We'll never know. <laughs> What's well, the thanks. difference anyway? Thanks, Ben. Uh, without further ado, I'm very happy to introduce our guest today. Robbie Burns is a music educator, a freelance percussionist, and a technology specialist. He teaches band and general music at Ellicott Mills Middle School in Howard County, Maryland, and he also maintains an active private studio, and his students have been accepted into all kinds of honor ensembles, district and state, and have gone on to become music majors. Um, he's an active freelance percussionist. He's played with Signature Theater, Studio Theater, Opera Camerata of Washington, D.C., and the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. Um, he's worked with a lot of local music projects like the Rock Cello Quartet Primitivity and the Nine Piece Funk Band, the Superland Stage Band. And in the realm of technology, which is where I think we're going to spend a majority of today's episode robbie is the author of digital organization tips for music teachers it's a book that was published in 2016 by oxford university press and he writes and speaks um, very well about the intersection of music education and technology on his blog and podcast that's called music ed tech talk you should check it out um, he's presented at all kinds of music education conferences um, kind of seems like all over the u.s um, including the music ed tech conference this past july and I know Robbie from way back when he was doing his bachelor's and his master's at University of Maryland. Um, so it's awesome to, to see you again and chat with you, Robbie. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is going to be so fun. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for being here. So I thought we'd start by getting into your book a little bit, Digital Organization Tips for Music Teachers, um, which is like a little bit, I was thinking ahead of the curve because you, you this came out in 2016, right? Yeah. And at that point, I don't know if, you know, most music teachers could have guessed how much digital organization they could need in their lives, like we've all gone through in the last year and a half. Um, but tell us a little bit, what was the impetus for the book? Yeah, that's, um, that's a, a good question, because like everyone's, everyone who I feel like is similar to me in that they are super enthusiastic about technology, but they come from a different discipline or a different field or have some other kind of like set of skills that's like really their dominant identity as a professional. Um, you know, we all, we all kind of get into technology in different ways. And for me, it was around the time I was in grad school and I was um, like, I'm, I'm, I was really struggling through a class at the University of Maryland that they make all of the performing majors go through where you have to, you know, take a writing class and uh, write, a, write a big paper. And uh, I was just like pretty overwhelmed with the amount of research that was being asked of me. And uh, so I started to, I had just recently bought my first Mac and I was into a lot of the software that, you know, some of the first party stuff, but also some of the third party stuff that was available to the Mac in terms of like productivity. So things like note-taking apps and cloud apps like Dropbox and things like this. And, uh, and I realized I was like, wow, I don't have to just like email files to myself all the time. I can like have these cloud syncing data stores of knowledge that I've collected and then like just find stuff. 
super easily. Uh, and then after I graduated, uh, I started doing a lot of freelance arranging and composing and gigging with some local music projects. And that was like really kind of just stretching my notation and digital audio workstation skills. So I got a little bit comfortable with, at the time, Sibelius and Pro Tools, which uh, were, they were like my kind of my entry points into those two software categories, respectively. And I just got really into those things. And uh, technology became a way for me to be more efficient and more creative. And I just kept going down the rabbit hole, eventually getting an iPad when I first got, you know, I got my first um, public school teaching gig soon after that. And then when I got the iPad, I was like, whoa, phone, tablet, computer, how do I get all of these to just be different windows into the same information instead of these three separate tools? And uh, so then I, I just kept going down the productivity rabbit hole. And then one day, um, a colleague of mine named Richard McCready, he teaches music technology at River Hill High School and was at the time uh, trying to find presenters for our state's uh, music educator conference. And uh, he said, you should present. And I said, okay, I don't think anyone thinks any of this stuff is interesting. And it was received pretty well and started doing more presenting. And then eventually he became the series editor of this, um, you know, the, my book, which is, is a, it's part of a, a series of books published by Oxford University Press. It's called the Prestissimo series. And they're all like these short digests for busy, you know, they're sort of marketed towards busy music teachers who are in service and don't have a lot of time to go spelunking into the, you know, like the depths of all the like kind of nerdery that I, I had to do to learn this stuff. So some of the book is organizing things really specific to musicians, like organizing your music library, like, you know, like your iTunes library uh, and keeping, you know, a good record of all of your audio, but also things like digital sheet music and how to scan that and get that into your system and organize it and work with it on a tablet. Uh, and then there's like this, I, I would say like a vast majority of the book is really just general productivity stuff. So like how to wrangle email, how to uh, save stuff from a web browser and like organize it in an interesting way and like give it, you know, tag it with keywords, um, to do apps, task management, breaking down projects, these kinds of things. Well, it's so good. I feel like these things, Robbie, are like the things that sometimes we, I'm sure we all do this, but I do this. Like if I spent 15 minutes trying to find a faster way to do this in the future, it would save me hours and hours and hours. But instead I do it the long way over and over again. And like, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm getting better. Um, and especially over the pandemic, like I had to with digital organization, but for example, I used to scan music on my phone and just email it to myself. And I wouldn't even put the name in the file in the email, it would just be like, oh, right. like my copy of, I don't know, Dream of the Cherry Blossoms, I scanned like in July of 2017. So I'd go and look for it. Like it was just a mess. And now at least I scan it and I save it with a tag and I can find it. But it's those little things that save you so much time later if you're willing to do the work now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You kind of just, um, there's like little, little bits here and there, like where if you take a little bit of extra time to have good ideas digital hygiene, then you, you can really benefit later. And it goes down like this extreme rabbit hole too. Cause one of the things that's kind of like bonus for the people who really want to go there is in the end of the book, I've got some automation and that's when you're actually like programming your computer, not, not programming like in code, but just using utilities that can, you know, like string four or five or six or more commonly performed steps that you do into like one tap action that you would do. And all of it is just like an effort. To, yeah. It's like to save future you like, five seconds here, five seconds there, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, or even more. Yeah, awesome. So are, I'm wondering, are there like maybe three or so 
takeaways that you think are the most valuable thing you could share with um, fellow percussion educators? Yeah, um, so like organization and presentation go a really long way. So um, like I was, I, I, re I was reading this question in advance and I was thinking through really trying to think like, what are, like, what are really actually the top three things that I think? And I think that what came to mind first is that amongst my strengths as a teacher, I feel like musicianship and pedagogy is like the top most important thing that there is. Um, and then when it comes especially to private teaching or, or like even in the public school system teaching band, like personality, like beings, like a person with an attitude that that is contagious to people and like people want to be around is like maybe like the second most important thing to me. And then right underneath that is organization and presentation. And that's for me has just really helped me to, I know we're talking a little bit about like, you know, running a private percussion studio, like having um, like a top-notch website is not really hard by today's standards. Like you can just go to squarespace.com and pay them and they have like beautiful templates and we'll do all of the hard stuff for you. And you're just like typing, you know, dragging and dropping little blocks in order, um, using apps to wrangle email and schedule and like share resources with your students and just generally like make your expectations and their progress transparent to them and their families is like really easy to do with so much great software. Um, and it'll make you like stand out amongst the others with like relatively low effort on your part. Um, I guess the second thing I was thinking through was that uh, creative software can really help you. So like for me, it's opened up the door of understanding audio um, better and a lot of different, a lot of things like composition better, problem solving better, acoustics better. Uh, just like my understanding of like Pro Tools basics has like really just helped me to understand things about audio that I didn't understand just by like practicing in a practice room and hearing the sound bounce off of the four walls. Um, and it's opened up the door for me to learn how to make digital resources, which often benefit my students. Um, things like play along tracks and uh, even, you know, some of my own literature and exercises for my students to practice. Um, and then I guess the third thing is that technology is a tool. So it's not unlike an instrument in some ways. This is when people get really scared of technology. I try to tell them to just approach it like an instrument. I mean, obviously, like it's going to be an instrument that you're bad at, but it is it is a tool like a computer has it has fingerings, for example. Um, and while an instrument helps you communicate your musicianship and gives you a voice, technology can be that with creative software, but it's also just like going to make you more efficient and get it out of the way. Like the, the ideal goal of technology for me is that it actually becomes transparent and fades away so that like musician me comes forward and like I'm not just drowning in logistic tasks all day long when I really want to be planning my next lesson. Well, that sounds lovely. <laughs> that sounds like yeah. the dream, right? Like more time being a musician, less time doing all of the less enjoyable parts of our jobs. Um, Robbie, you have me intrigued when you say you have software that or apps that um, help you wrangle email because wrangling email sounds like something that probably most of us need help with. What is, tell us more. Okay, yeah, I'll just, so it's tough because it's like in the book, there's like a bunch of ones, but I'll just tell you one email app that runs on all Apple platforms. And I think they've got an Android version now. It is called Spark Mail. And I like it for a few reasons. Number one is their business model is that they have, uh, if you really like it, they have this whole like team kind of feature, like where you can, pay for a bunch of people on a team to like collaborate on the same email together. And that's just not something that interests me or that I need in my professional life at all. So like, I just get to continue enjoying the free version and knowing that they're going to keep making it awesome. Um, 
you know, assuming that people, there are people out there who are paying for these team uh, memberships. So anyway, here's what it does. So it does a, a number of features that like are super common today for email. Uh, one of them is it lets you snooze messages. So you can say like, Hey, this is like, I'm a big delegator. So like, I don't want to think about something unless it's actually relevant to me in the moment. So you can say, all right, this is not an email that requires my action, or this is an email that requires action, but not until next Tuesday at 3 PM. So you snooze it and it leaves your inbox and then it comes back later. Um, you can quickly send it to third party note and task apps. So like if an email is actionable and I want to like give it, put it like in a project and give it a due date, I can send it over to OmniFocus, which is my task app. Um, I can do, I can actually send uh, an email to someone and then have it remind me if they don't reply a certain date. And I can even have a schedule an email to send at a specific time. So this is great for like inevitable 11 PM emails to parents in the school system. And just like, I don't need them knowing that I'm at, up at 11 because I'm not available to them at 11, but I have some free time typing the email. So just tell it, send it at 7 AM tomorrow morning. Yeah, that's, that's is, a really good one. That schedule send. Is, is there like, you know, you can set up automatic replies, like out of the office, you know, whatever. Is there an automatic thing on, what was it? Spark mail that, um, like if it's a Googleable question, it'll just like send a response, like with the Google answer. <laughs> like if it's like, Casey, when were you, I need your birth year for a program. It's like, dude, that's like, just Google it, man. Like, that's what I want. I want an auto Google response. I mean, Casey, you know for that, podcast I, listeners, could you just tell us what your birth year is so that everyone that, will know? They'll that just won't come to work. This specific point. No one will know. They'll still, they'll still email. They'll still email. That <laughs> they will spend more time emailing you than they would just like googling it. So I want an auto response system that just like has the result from Google before I even see the email. Does that exist? So it's two things. First, is there? Do you remember this website? Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Let Me Google That For You dot yes. com. Yes. Yeah, so that's still around, I think. So uh, for those who don't know, you type in, a, you go to, the, I think it's just you, the acronym for that. So like LM, whatever, let me Google that for you. And then you type in whatever the search query is, and then it provides a link for the annoying person on the other end of the call that you share with them. And then when they click the link, it says, let me Google that for you. And then it opens up their browser, opens google.com, and then a little cursor goes straight to the search and then like types out <laughs> the query for them. That's pretty rad. I like that and, one. It's uh, a nice little dig. I just, I would love like not even, not even talk to them. Like, hey, no, look, here's your answer from Google right there. But yeah, no, that's. And you're being helpful. Really, really, you are. You're still doing the work for them. So, it's but <laughs> to be, uh, if that happened to me a lot, legitimately, there is actually an app I would use for it. That's in my book. It's called Text Expander. And it's now on Windows too, so it's cross-platform to some extent. It's a Mac, Windows, iOS thing. And you create custom snippets of text that you frequently type, and then uh -huh. you assign them to string, shorter strings of text. So like, uh, I always am emailing parents if their kids miss sectionals in the band program. And I just like, when I type the word missed sectional without a space between the two, then I have uh -huh. this preset email that just like fills in wherever yeah. my cursor mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool, yep, yep, yep. That's super good. That makes sense. That's a good one. On, on that note for like, like default responses, one trick that someone taught me is you can use the email signature and you can have like 10 different signatures, like maybe one for a prospective student that emails you or whatever. So you can have those saved responses. But uh, Robbie, something you said made me like kind of have a question here. And that's that like, there are some things we're talking about like email apps or whatever that like you're, you're always going to do your own email. We're not, we don't have 
people doing our email for us. But um, in terms of something like a digital audio workstation or video software, uh, there are things that to a certain extent we can do on our own, but there's also probably a bar that at a certain point, I'm gonna hire someone to do my sound for recording. Uh, and so I guess just like with that example of like recording or any equivalent thing like that, what what's your bar for I can handle it myself versus I I, I need to just get someone to come do this for me, I'll pay them. Mm, that's such a good question. Um, so there's like, there's stuff that I have to do no matter what. So for me, the bar is like, how much time am I going to put into trying to make this more efficient? That's actually going to like save me net total time. Like if I'm fiddling with some automation script for like an hour and it's really only going to save me 10 seconds, maybe 40 times in my whole life at a certain point, unless I'm having fun, I, I have to call it quits. Uh, and then there's like, yeah, there's like, what do you, what do you delegate to other people? I mean, I, I guess for me, it's just like what it's just, I, I've learned to measure my time so much better through these apps. Actually, I, I hadn't planned to talk about any, but some of the apps that I'm using lately are actually time tracking apps. So it's like helping me to figure out like, oh, how much time do I spend writing email? How much time do I spend private teaching? How much time do I spend doing all these like real basic things? Um, and I guess like either when it's no longer worth what I value my time as, to do something or when I need there to be like, I can't have two or more of me in the same place at the same time. Like I would definitely, if I did professional recording of my concerts, I would definitely hire someone. Like I just can't, I've tried to do it before where I'm like running into the back and like messing with pro tools or logic or whatever, and then running up to the front. Like it's just too much like directing, you know, a con I mean, I, I have had concerts where I'm responsible for like 240 band kids, you know, almost by myself. So it's just, it's too much. I just remember in grad school trying to record like that Miami would record audio, but like at that point they didn't do video and trying to like record your own recitals, like usually finding someone to run the camera and what it, it was just, it was a lot <laughs> to try and record yourself live. Yeah. I'm also like, so totally happy to pay people to be good at things that they're good at. So that's just, that is absolutely one of those things on my list. Well, Robbie, you've talked a lot about technology that sounds super, super useful. Um, is there anything we haven't talked about yet that you consider indispensable in your teaching? Like, what could you not live without? Mm, yeah, that's okay. That's that's a good one because um, there's like so many like little tiny utilities that fall into that productivity category. But like, when I really think about what can't I live without, I guess there's hardware and there's software. And at this point, I feel pretty naked in any professional environment if I don't have a MacBook, an iPad, an iPhone, and an Apple Watch within like 10 yards of myself. Um, so like Apple stuff is kind of like my bread and butter. Um, I, you know, I just, I think that the ecosystem of, especially all these productivity apps is really, really good on Apple products. And um, there's lots of people making just in the, like, you'll, you'll find there will just be, there's so many cases like this where there'll just be like one single person who makes a really, really good writing app and it's, it's on the app store and it's very beautifully designed and reasonably priced. And there's just tons of that stuff, you know, and a lot of this stuff syncs across devices because Apple has sort of prioritized that as a company and as a philosophy. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of good apps that I can use on all of those different platforms. Uh, and then I have, uh, most of my, you know, teaching setups have an interface, a decent microphone, a wireless headset is now at the beginning of the, uh, at the front of the band room. Uh, and then at my home studio, I have some camera gear, some uh, MIDI input 
devices like uh, for composing and arranging like a piano and Octopad and an Ableton push just to kind of, you know, be a little bit more creative and sort of nested at my desk. Uh, so for software, the list is much bigger. Um, I've got actually, I can give it to you if you do any show notes. I've got a page on my website that I can uh, link you to, which is just a list of all of my favorite apps and hardware. Because um, I really am really, I'm a software guy. Like if I had to use a different brand phone that had um, iOS on it, or like I could keep my iPhone, but it would run Android. Like I think I would just have to keep whatever runs iOS at this point. I'm just so locked into literally hundreds of apps. Uh, that, you know, and, and just the software OS itself, it, you know, works in sync. Like right now I am trying this new feed beta testing, this new feature coming out to Apple stuff in the fall, where it's like, you can create your own version of do not disturb. And I have one called podcasting that when I run it, it puts all of my devices into podcasting mode and it like changes the home screen on my iPad to just apps I need for stuff like this. Um, it only allows my wife's texts to come through. It does some home automation stuff with the lights in the house. It just like, you know, does, it triggers a bunch of things and it starts time tracking my recording. So, um, like I just, I can't get that anywhere else. And then as far as apps go, the most dispense, indispensable ones, we talked about spark mail, OmniFocus, uh, for calendars. I like one called fantastical, which I can talk about if you want. Um, for writing, I, most of the text that I write for for any purpose, whether it becomes an email, a blog post, um, or a, or a text message, starts in a program called Drafts, and uh, that is really a, quite a good one because uh, it's like a kind of a minimalist text editor. But then on, on the back end, you can like launch the text of your drafts into different apps. It's got all these like actionable buttons you can press, like take this and send it to the Messages app or email app or uh, make it a task in my to-do list or make it into a grocery list or something like this. Uh, and then for music, Fourscore is my sheet music management and reading and annotating app on iPad. It's now on the Mac. Uh, Dorico is my engraving and, and scoring program. Uh, Logic is what I use most audio editing. Uh, the Tonal Energy Tuner app is like the most robust metronome and tuning app around. I use that all the time, especially in band where we're using justly in drones to tune chords to. And then uh, more recently, I'm doing a lot with Ableton Live. Uh, and I really like one that I thought I would shout out called Craft, which is, I don't know how to describe Craft. It's kind of like, a, you, it's kind of like you make really pretty looking documents in it, and then you can um, share it as publishable websites. So you can sort of like create, imagine being able to create really good looking um, like kind of word processing documents, but then being able to like create almost your own like little wiki inside of the app. So like you can have this thing over here, this thing over here, and then you can create like backlinks from one document to the other. So you can easily kind of get from one to the other. And then you can publish a note as a, a little website. So what I've been doing lately is my private studio. Every kid has a craft document that I have made just for them with a link to like notes from every single lesson we've had. And then when you double click on a date, it kind of takes you into a new area of their document. And then they have like, like just a bullet point list of everything that I expect them to practice. But then I can put things in there like PDFs of sheet music and links to great YouTube recordings, like for reference tracks or a little couple like a short little to-do list for them that they can check off or something like this. And currently they're running, uh, students and teachers can get an educator discount I think all of this is 
just blowing my mind. I've met some people who, you know, like technology and use it, but I've never met anyone like Robbie. So I think Robbie, you could have like you could develop a career just working in Bill Gates's house, which is is seems to me like to be the only other home that uses as many apps as you do. So the stuff that I found on your website where you've got like smart bulbs and smart door locks and even a coffee app. Oh yeah, so the AeroPress, I don't know if it's official or not, but they have an app that's just fun. It's like uh, a timer for your AeroPress that tells you like how much, you know, how, what like how many grams of beans to put in the top and like how long to let the water sit in there and then how much to add more, you know, it, it kind of just times you through it. And then there's, I don't know if this is, I'm kind of a coffee snob. There's like um, worldwide AeroPress championships and then the top three winning recipes get put in the app. So you can try to make your coffee like they do. It's very, very fun. Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. But I was going to ask, uh, what do you say to all those people who are reluctant to use all of that technology, especially things like Apple Watch, which can monitor things like your sleep or whatever, you know, water intake, I don't know what else, um, saying that this is a, a complete sell out of your privacy? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I guess, I mean, like you just don't you do everyone has like a point like a line that they're willing to cross and i just say like with learning new technology like whether or not it's going to benefit you to put the investment in is really similar to like what you want to you know what you want to put in your machine and everyone just has to kind of find where that line is for them um if you want to you know it's tough because like the kind of person that you're describing is you know i don't know there's people who are like on one extreme where it's like they put a sticker over the webcam on their computer and then like a whole like spectrum of people from there. Um, I, I'd say like I'm, I like privacy when I, you know, when I can get it, but I also do a lot of things that are super hypocritical. Like I have Google, like a Google product in my house that has a speaker in it. Like they say they're not listening to me, uh, you know, but like, I don't know. I think like use it, like I do believe to some extent that Apple's stance on privacy is a little bit like it's a whole lot of marketing, but I do believe that they underneath of that marketing, there is some to some degree, they do make choices that keep the devices a little bit more private. So I try to have those be my devices. And then I try to just make sure that my third party software is end to end encrypted if it's data that I wouldn't ever want to get into someone's hands. I think that like companies have, uh, especially the big tech companies have a lot of power right now in our society, like too much power. It's impossible to not be aware of what these big tech companies are doing. And so I think there's a little bit more accountability and oversight from the public. Um, so I don't know, that gives me a little bit of hope that they will continue to do the right thing in the future. Isn't but it? yeah, if you really are super privacy minded, I would just say Apple Isn't stuff is, is good. And then just be real mindful of what these are doing. Isn't it frustrating though? Like people like you, tell Facebook what you had for breakfast. And then people are like, how dare they spy on me and know what I had for breakfast? Like it can't work any other way. Like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, like your privacy will, well, right. It's not, don't 
divulge private stuff. <laughs> like, I just don't like, yeah, don't put your credit card up there. Like put what you had for breakfast, put stuff up there that doesn't matter. It's, it's very confusing to me. I don't understand how it's, it's so controversial. Did you know, Robbie, that we reported on the show, hackers figured out how to steal data by just looking at your computer tower, by looking at the blinking light, like every motherboard usually has some blinking light on it, like the hard drive runs and the light blinks. And they, um, I've, we've reported on this some years ago, but like there's malware that will take control of that light and it will steal your data and communicate the data by blinking the light like really fast. So if a hacker can see the light, they can steal your data. That's all. Yeah, I don't, I don't like that's, to think about that, but <laughs> I just thought it was really, I just thought it was really fun. <laughs> Well, moving on from um, privacy concerns, sure. Robbie, I wanted to talk about your recent blog post, which is titled Take, Leave, Transform. What do we keep from last school year? And I know you mentioned a little bit earlier about your tech setup. You have your interface and all that stuff at school. I assume you were probably doing some hybrid teaching, like a bunch of kids are in front of you and some are on Zoom. Um, so I'm wondering what's your take on what do you think are some of the things that we should keep versus what we'll actually keep? Um, maybe if you have some thoughts on that. And then also, what should we definitely not keep? Yeah, that's uh, a good question. So um, I've seen the school systems go back to normal um, pretty abruptly in a way that's, you know, it's maybe a mistake. Like there's, I think there's possibly more we could learn from the past year than what I'm seeing implemented. Like my school system is just like, we're just jumping right in actually tomorrow, the students come back. So we're just jumping all in. Um, so there's certain things that did keep from last year. Um, one of those is a lot, whole lot of hardware and software that students actually get to use. So a lot of the technology I've been mentioning so far is teacher facing, like it matters how I use it. Now we have some stuff that students can use. And uh, so like in, in Howard County Public Schools, kids have Chromebooks now. And uh, in my own band in general music classes that I teach, they have program, a program called Soundtrap, which is basically like a digital audio workstation that runs in the tab of a web browser. And you can do anything from recording yourself to recording multiple different students at the same time in the same project to, uh, you know, writing songs and beat producing and all of that stuff. So, uh, you know, it's nice that we, we got these things. Um, the things that I'm going to keep for next year that are outside of my control, uh, or at least rather that are not like sort of, sort of given to us to use are going to be uh, just some, some practices that were, um, that worked really well for me this past year that I think will work in a traditional environment. So, um, one of those is um, like we got, um, you know, at the, at the front of the band room at Ellicott Mills, we have all of our audio equipment we bought to teach virtually last year at the front of the room. So now we have an interface, uh, a hub that like allows you to plug one plug into your computer and that gets that computer routing through the stereo system, uh, recording with a decent quality microphone, plugged into the projector, charging. We have a wireless mic at the front of the room that we bought to be heard with masks, but now I'm really looking forward to not yelling <laughs> at my students all the time. Um, and then we're, we really rethought our teaching setup from the front of the band room because, you know, I'd like to use my computer more as an extension of myself. Like last year, I had to do so much more communicating with audio and visual resources because every kid was just experiencing me through a screen. And I think that a lot of that stuff is actually really great. We just don't typically think to use it because 
we're trained from our early days to think that like the conductor is this like holy person that like beats the baton and like that music making is all this completely emotional and organic process where it's just us and the instruments and you know everything that we can do together and with those um but i'm totally thinking like how do i re-envision like what even a band director is like why can't i have um you know lots more like video and audio tracks playing through my computer speakers for kids so you know i'm trying to figure out like how to make the computer a counterpoint to the instruction and a, a source of engagement that is in addition to like we have a rehearsal and music to learn and techniques to get that music learned uh, i'm hoping that you know that, that'll be good. Play, play along tracks are a real big thing for me over the past year. Um, one of the teachers in my district joked that when we were fully virtual, that uh, teachers were really more like spin instructors than they were band directors and orchestra directors because literally like to keep them playing, I would pl hit play on a track and then, you know, it would model for them rhythm and tone and phrasing and it would motivate them did to you, play. Did you cheer them on like a spin in instructor also? <laughs> <laughs> my, all of my models for that are like in the peloton universe and like i just can't i don't think i could pull off the personality required you got for... this 180 beats per minute let's go <laughs> i have to tell you i felt a little bit like that sometimes though like i'm leading classes through stick control warm-ups and like four more keep going three you know that kind of thing it just it feels a little wacky yeah, but there are tools that can make good, like that stuff is good. Like I, I in my lessons in my band classroom, like I already am, was trying to make good play along material for them before there was any pandemic. So like using stuff like Ableton Live and there's one I like called, I know I'm throwing lots of apps at you today, but like there's one called AnyTune, which can slow down or change, speed up or change the pitch of an audio track independently. Um, so I would take, I'll take a lot of band tracks or play along tracks for my private students, like, you know, the ones that come with drum set method books and things, and I'll slow them down to like 60 or 75%. And then, you know, and now with the new craft system, I'm explaining earlier, I can like dump or just drag the, you know, the play along track right into docs and then they just have it on the internet, you know, a click away. I think you wanted to ask me, what should we definitely not keep? Was that the part that I let out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the follow-up question. I would personally love to, like, while I said I want my computer to be an me, I definitely don't want to be tethered to it anymore. Um, and then this is just, like, not even related. To, like, when you see kids not having equal access to things, it just really makes you rethink what grade. And, you know, the more I think about it, the more I'm thinking, like, yeah, I don't do that in private lessons. And those are really successful students. So maybe, like, grading can become less a part of what I do. And that sounds crazy coming from a teacher, but there's a great book I read this summer called Ungrading. Um, it's a it's a bunch of essays put together by Susan Bloom from teachers who eliminated grading. And uh, I'm looking forward to finding ways where I can meaningfully give feedback to students, but not have a you know, conversation be centered on, like here's a number that's associated with you as a person. I'm trying to get that out of teaching for next year, for sure. You're right. That is interesting coming from a public school teacher because that's so much of what you have to do. You know, everything's tied to a grade. And I think with the with the pandemic, at least we've had to think about equity and access in different ways where um, before maybe we didn't have the same considerations for students that didn't have access to instruments. And it was just so clear, like, hey, if you're all at home and your parents can't afford to rent or buy a xylophone, you know, then like you just don't have one and we have to accommodate that. We have to find a way to either get you one or get you something else to do. Yeah, exactly. 
Robbie, I definitely want to ask you, like everything online and everything I know about you as a teacher shows that you have such a such a really well-established and well-organized and really successful private studio. And so I wonder if you'd tell us um, a little bit, kind of some of the things you learned along the way, um, what, what helps you to have it so well-established and organized. And is there anything that you know now that you wish you knew when you started out? Yeah, I think what helps me is that I, I think about it a little bit more like a business than some of my, um, you know, than some of my colleagues maybe do like, and, and that's just largely due to like having a larger size studio. Um, but it wasn't always this way, like things started a lot more casual. I think it was about when I came into the district that I currently teach in Howard County, where uh, because I lived here and was teaching here, I was making a lot more connections with the band directors, the kinds of people who would recommend that their percussionists come and study with me. Um, so what I did when I first came here was I actually just to sort of make sure everyone was aware that I was available and interested in teaching is I, you know, that was around the time that I built my website. And then I got, uh, you know, I found a friend who, you know, was learning photography at the time and was willing to, you know, for pretty cheap, actually, maybe even free, like to take some photos of me. And uh, I made like, you know, I, I made a little flyer that was just a giant picture of me and printed it out on hundreds of copies of really, really nice, thick, high gloss paper at Staples. And then I, you know, mailed one to every single band director in the district with a little, you know, I guess what you would call a cover letter, just a little introduction. And then, uh, you know, then the lessons really started pouring in. So, I mean, I've had, I don't know, it's tough. Things, things are really fluctuate, but I would say like right now I have about 20 private students. Um, and it's usually, you know, uh, like the low end is like 15 and I've had as many as like 25 before, which is, a little ridiculous, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, the, the, every every sort of aspect of my sort of professional presentation has just very, very slowly and steadily gotten a little bit better since then. Um, I was I was going to say that uh, I I had that same sort of moment where I was like, oh, I, I need to have like a professional thing that I can like hand out, and I got business cards made, and I can't remember I either got five hundred or two thousand business cards made. Uh, with my email address on them, and then I got a new job, and uh, it's, <laughs> they're, they're worthless now. That's a great way to get a new job, though, is print information that will be not relevant in one year. I have never printed a business card, and I feel like I just, like, right around the time when I was really thinking about it was the same time, and I was like, well, am I going to really want a business card in five years from now? And uh, I don't know. I haven't been handed a business card in quite a while, so maybe I just, like, lucked out with that. <laughs> well, I'm a little old school. Like I actually, I've had business cards, I think since I started grad school and I, I think I actually off. got the idea from Carly. It is a thing like there's, there's nothing beats paper. Like that's with, you know, the whole like organization and the, in the, you know, tablet as sort of a, a piece of paper, like the, at the end of the day, like the tactile feeling of like reaching into your back pocket and it's full of lint and then like, oh, look, it's your business card. I should like stick this somewhere familiar and then, you know, make a phone call when I need you. Like that's, I don't know. It's unbeatable. Yeah. There's something about, there's something about here, like in case you need my number, my email address, there it is. There's something nice about that. You can't ignore it too. It's like I, every day I get junk mail in my physical work mailbox. And I actually do like, I, I, I open them and I see them. It's right in my face. Whereas I know that if I email a PDF lesson flyer to all the teachers in my district, they, you know, I don't know, a, a very large percentage of them won't even open it. 
Yeah, that's a good point. We have to look at our, our hard copy snail mail. Um, well, Robbie, I, I know I mentioned earlier you have this awesome podcast, Music Ed Tech Talk, um, and it's a blog too. Uh, tell us a little bit about the podcast and maybe I, I know when we talk about our podcast like that we do here, I always feel like we learn an enormous amount. It probably benefits us as co-hosts more than any listeners because we're just here and, and in it for everything. Um, what have been some of the most valuable things you've learned from doing your podcast? Yeah, I think the, the thing about having a podcast is if you, you know, ideally you can just be like the least smart person in the conversation if you like get lucky with people who are your guests. So like for me, I just always trying to find those people and like who will I have a relaxed and comfortable and engaging conversation with, but who's going to elevate the discussion and like make me think about something in a different way. Um, so for that reason, I've been very fortunate to get to have conversations with people. I mean, it's it's worth saying, like a podcast, even one that doesn't, you know, like any anyone who has a podcast that has some decent. This comes back to the presentation thing with the with the private studio, like any decent artwork, well put together title, like just a like a little dash of professionalism, and like you, you know, for anyone who's I don't know if I don't know if any of your listeners are thinking about starting a podcast, but it just goes such a long way. Like there are people who offer who are more than willing to come on my show that I don't think would be willing to come on my show if it didn't have that, you know, that sort of like presentation to it. Um, so then when those people come on the show, then it's fun because I get to just uh, learn, learn things from them. Like, I don't know, I'll just highlight like one, there's so many that I don't want to you know, go all over the place. But I'll just mention like one really great guest that I had recently was Alex Shapiro, who is a composer. And we talked about like getting students who are, you know, performers to compose for the first time. And she's really awesome and profound because while she writes a lot of music for professionals, she believes that all composers should write for young, like even the like most basic of beginners. Um, and she has a number of reasons for that. One of them is she thinks it's, you know, like a really important part of her creative process to be thinking about and limiting herself in certain respects of her composite, you know, her composing. Um, but the other one is she's like, these are the musicians who are gonna play like my thing that I just premiered, you know, it was just premiered by a, a symphony orchestra. Like they're, those kids at some point, all of them are sitting in a fourth grade band class. Um, and so she's talking to me, you know, also kind of exploring this idea of like how early, like in, in especially in concert band, like orchestra literature, there's a whole industry around like, here's what a grade level one piece is. And here's what rhythms a beginner can play. Here's what notes a beginner can play. And she's like, actually, most of that isn't even really true. Like the most limiting thing for a wind player when they're a beginner is just range. But there's a lot of things that you can do with a really limited range. Like, okay, so what, they know six notes, lots of great music by like real, air quoting legit composers uses only six notes like there's just so much of it out there so why not try to be a little bit more interesting and creative with how you approach that so she's not only does she have great like she just published a beginning band piece called count to ten which has every time signature between two four and nine four in it um but she also wrote a curriculum which was really helpful to a lot of us teaching in the pandemic because it was a curriculum for performing arts students to compose for the first time. And it involves them, um, you know, writing writing their own short melodic material and then recording it. And then, this, then they kind of like get a big Dropbox folder of everyone else's recordings. And then they make a musical collage out of it in a 
digital audio workstation. So she's just brilliant. And I'm just like, all of these things are both opening up my philosophy about how I think about teaching and like what my role as a public school teacher is, but also just giving me like in the moment practical ideas that I can implement tomorrow. So I don't know, lots, lots of good comes from it. I'm super lucky. Yeah, yeah, it's so rewarding. I feel the same way. I think um, just to see like a little glimpse into somebody else's the way they think about the work and their, you know, the way they balance their work and just their their approach, like usually what we see is the finished product or we see their website or we see people's posts on social media or we see them perform or, you know, and, and like we see like just the just the surface and to have conversations like these, we see kind of what makes you tick and what what you're looking for and, and just so, you learn so much. Definitely. So Robbie, I wanted to ask you before we wrap up, um, what do you see as some of the silver linings from the pandemic? We've talked about a lot of good things that came out of our um, technological reliance during the pandemic, some of the good things, some of the negative things. Um, what do you see as some of the silver linings as far as music education and what are you most looking forward to this year with your band students starting tomorrow? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think having certain things we just have now that we didn't have are great. So like Chromebooks and and this program Soundtrap, I was mentioning before, like this, this is just, we were already behind, but not having this stuff like this is, these are these are the tools of the and, and it's not not that it's been the focus of our conversation. But like, I also have a couple of general music classes, like, we're, we're studying some popular musical styles in those classes. And then like, until last year, not even like if you don't have this stuff, you're not providing the tools that that music is natively created in. You know, like if you're looking at music of the last like 70, 80 years in America, and you know you're not like able to really make it because all of that stuff is actually made in a studio, then I don't know. It's pretty inauthentic. It's the same. It would be the same as you know teaching band without any tubas. Yeah, I mean, for for me and my teaching, it's been like I used to be I mean, I like paper, I'm a little old school, I'm a little old fashioned in a lot of ways. And I used to have here's my folder for this school and here and like the hard copy records of all the lessons. And then the the hard thing there is if you forget your folder, nobody has anything. Plus, there's like, if you what if you lose it, like, then you can't access it. And through the pandemic, I moved everything I'm like all over Google Drive and Google Docs and Google Sheets and you, I love that I can access it from any device and it's there so that's been that's been a silver lining for me. Yeah, do you feel like you've got like a pretty because I, I know for me like there's part like there's things digitally that I remember like where I did early in my digital organi organizing life like I did like a big bulk of stuff like I remember the early years of like where I put like hundreds of hours into organizing iTunes and then I've just sort of been like to some extent writing that and like just it's all like supplementing the small stuff since then same with my sheet music or like my like i remember the night that i'd stayed up all night with a bottle of wine and just like scanned all of the teaching resources i got in my whole undergraduate years and then like now i just have them they're like all text searchable on my computer word for word so i don't know do you feel like you got like a, substan a substantial enough part of that down that i was you gonna build I was going to say, I, I want so bad to pay a student to just scan like my Goldenberg book, my Cerrone book, these like, and it's like, I, yeah, I, those, they're not available as PDFs. Um, and so, yeah, it's like things like that. The problem is just, it's so time consuming to scan, like the Goldenberg book is thick. Well, so Robbie, you mentioned earlier that you've been working with Ableton Live and has that been, how's that been influencing your teaching? 
So the thing that's fun about Ableton Live is that it is a digital audio workstation that can operate much in the same way of all of the traditional ones where you record music in a very linear fashion from, you know, time moves from left to right in the interface. But what Ableton does is it's designed for people who produce electronic music and electronic music is something that sometimes is composed maybe more non-linearly like you're you're thinking of sort of like groove based clips and like how those mix and match together. So it's got this whole mode called arrange mode where you just basically have all these um, sort of like, I, I don't know, I, like non-linear sort of musical ideas, but that can be triggered rhythmically together. So I can say, here's like a four, four beat long drum loop. Here's, I'm providing context for those who don't know, this is not how I'm actually using it, but this, you can like say, here's a four beat long uh, drum clip. Here's a two measure long bass line. And then by dragging them into this interface, they'll all like, I can hear them alongside one another in time and I can trigger them and it will automatically and smartly based on some parameters I set up, it will like start the loops always on beat one. So like if I'm I've got some drums going, I say, let's add, let's try this bass clip, hit a button. And then the bass clip will wait until the next beat one to trigger. So it's designed so that electronic musicians who don't want to just like bring their MacBook on stage and then hit the space bar and like just dance, you know, so that they can actually like sort of like have all of these musical concepts they've composed in advance unfold with them actually like actively triggering them and transitioning them. Um, but what's fun for me is that as we were talking earlier about making play along tracks, I can actually sort of like on the fly improvise play along material for students in a way that that's interesting and engaging, um, especially younger kids, like younger kids don't like metronomes are, are yesterday. Like I'm all about like groove and drum tracks. Like, why not? Like, we're just like going to be, you know, if a kid really didn't have a great practice week or they're struggling with something and I know they're going to need to repeat a measure of some formalit thing like 20 times in a row really slow and gradually increasing I might as well like make that a little more fun for them so like something I can do is I can open up a track in Ableton and say okay like I can open up a drum track and I can compose a drum beat along to a click track and then without like fiddling or like editing once I play my four measure drum loop it just will keep going and then I can open up like a bass part and like improvise a little bass part along to whatever they're playing. And then that will sort of stack on top. And then I can take some ethereal sounding synth or something or some like sequencer or something fun. And then I can add that in and like this all, because this is performable, I mean, like I can, this is gonna be awkward, but I can just kind of show you on my desk here. Like this is the, the Ableton push right here. It's currently off, but it is a colorful grid of squares when it's running and you basically can like you know you can use these to trigger the notes of a software instrument or you can use them to trigger your different clips it dynamically adapts to whatever context you're in and you can almost control you can control almost all of ableton live from this grid of squares so i don't know it's kind of fun because now this you know we think of like our instrument as like i have an idea let me play that idea um as being sort of a direct thing whereas electronic music we think of as like something that you stop a lot and pause a lot to do it's like more of a craft um this thing makes it easy to just perform unlimited kinds of musical ideas on a whim uh so i don't know that's my latest kind of like kick my nerd kick because you know and then my kids will say like that's really cool i like that more than a metronome then i can just like quickly bounce the thing i've improvised and drag it again into their little craft dock that they can use as a practice track that is super cool. And it sounds like way more fun than, you know, like we've all done in lessons. I'm sure like the kid needs to practice. Okay, let me put the metronome on. And then you tell them like, get it three times in a row exactly right. Then three clicks faster, you know, like that's a drag for everybody. 
I refuse to, to allow them to let me be bored in a lesson. Like that's not, I will not allow it. That's a great attitude. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. Well, Robbie, where can our listeners um, check you out? Is there, what's coming up for you? Anything you want to plug? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the podcast and the blog are both at musicedtechtalk.com. And the podcast is about two episodes a month. The blog is as often as I can. And, um, you know, I'm writing a lot about teaching workflows. So like some of these kind of fun tips and tricks to be more productive, I write about. Um, lately and upcoming, I'll just kind of give a tease. Um, there's been a lot of movement in scoring notation apps for the iPad. Uh, Dorico and Sibelius both came out for the iPad pretty recently. Um, and I had Dorico's product marketing manager on my show to talk about all that. And then I'm actually, um, I'll just give you all your listeners a sneak peek. I'm having a very, very soon, um, one of the members of the design team for Sibelius is coming on my show to kind of talk about that whole process of developing that. So it's it's kind of like everyone is on from teachers to developers of music software to um, people who are adjacent to the fields of performance, education, and technology. So it's fun to do. Um, and I have a little, uh, a new fun thing. I have a Patreon as of two months ago where if people really like what I'm doing, they can um, you know, support, support what I'm doing. The fun. So here's the thing. The fun thing is like the lowest tier of support is actually like one of the things it gives you is access to this discord server that I started. And, uh, you know, I don't know, it's, it's been a fun community. It's like relatively small so far, but like people come and talk about lesson ideas and apps they're trying. And it's just a whole lot of what this discussion was today, but like people constantly in there just sharing ideas and asking questions. So that's awesome. That's yeah. cool. Well, so for for our listeners, go and uh, join Robbie's Patreon and join that percussion Patreon too. Um, that's cool. That's great. Well, Robbie, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, despite some technical difficulties, it's been awesome to talk with you, and I appreciate so much all that you shared with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This was like a delight and fun and a super energizing way to kick off with my first day of students tomorrow. Woohoo. Anyway, thank you, Robbie, and we'll see you see y'all next time.